Good morning. Charles Osgood is off today. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. All eyes are on Cleveland this week as the Republican National Convention prepares to get underway. Our eyes are on Cleveland as well, the real living and breathing Cleveland that exists outside the convention hall. Moraka will be our guide. In 1924, when it hosted its first Republican National Convention, Cleveland was a boomtown. Since then, not so much. Of the kind of Holger River grows smoking to my dream. But now, things are looking up. Cleveland, it's on fire. And no, I'm not talking about the river. Ahead on Sunday morning. The summer screen is about to be graced by a superb actress in the role of a not-so-superb singer. The actress is Meryl Streep, and she's been talking to Anthony Mason. The story was helped by my singing really badly in this. In her new film, Meryl Streep plays the real-life Florence Foster Jenkins, an ear-splitting amateur opera singer who somehow sold out Carnegie Hall. So many of the great singers of her time are not remembered but she is. Well, that's a tragedy, actually. <laughs> Later on Sunday morning, Meryl Streep and the story of the soprano who couldn't sing. For the record, the band known as Chicago can sing very, very well, and they've been at it for half a century now, as we'll be hearing from John Blackstone. Their many hits are familiar. And while you may not recognize their faces and names, you almost certainly know their logo. Your logo is arguably more famous than any of you are. Yeah, we've been hiding behind that logo for 50 <laughs> The musicians behind the name Chicago, ahead on Sunday morning. Birds of a Feather is a story from Tracy Smith, all about an unlikely-sounding partnership that's paying big dividends. Okay, they're loud and kind of obnoxious, but these parrots may actually help veterans deal with their deepest wounds. What is this relationship between the two of you? I think she immediately saw something in me that I needed, you know? We'll see how parrots are helping veterans with PTSD ahead on Sunday morning. Hello. 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 <laughs> Scott Simon takes us center stage at the Cleveland Playhouse. Connor Knighton is on the trail and will explain how a luxury resort wound up inside Virgin Islands National Park. We'll ponder the case of one very large, very strange basket and more. As long as we're out and about, I want to show you some of our magnificent art here in Cleveland. Ahead, we're Cleveland bound. This is absolutely free. We can do this as much as we want. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. France today is observing the second of three days of mourning for victims of Thursday's truck attack in Nice. Elizabeth Palmer is there. She has this Sunday journal. 
Here's the truck, a 19-ton juggernaut on Nice's beachfront drive. Suddenly, it accelerates away, plowing through the crowd. Panicked people ran in all directions. By the time Muhammad Boulel was stopped by police bullets, he'd killed 84 people. Among the dead, 51-year-old Sean Copeland and his 11-year-old son Brody from Austin, Texas. Among the missing, 20-year-old Nicholas Leslie, a student at the University of California at Berkeley. And there are others. We found Maicha Najima, a volunteer trying to locate 42-year-old Alja Buzawit. People were anxious to help, but no one had seen her. And her relatives wonder if, in the panic of the attack, she could have been pushed into the sea. Mohamed Boulel was 31 years old, born in Tunisia, but living in this apartment in Nice. He was estranged from his wife and kids and had lost his job. His neighbor Yasmin said he didn't act like an observant Muslim. He drank alcohol even during Ramadan and was very unfriendly. In Tunisia, his father said his son had a history of mental illness and depression. And when he got angry, he'd yell and break everything within reach. Mohamed Boulal was unstable, down on his luck, and angry with the world. But the police say that over the years there were no signs he'd been radicalized. However, today French media are reporting that his behavior had apparently changed in the days just before he launched the attack. One theory is that he'd begun to watch extremist propaganda online, and something snapped. On Saturday, ISIS claimed credit for the attack, though there's no evidence yet that they helped organize it. Unlike the terrorists in the Paris attacks last year, Boulel acted alone. His main weapon was a vehicle, his only real gun, a pistol. This is the new threat. Men who engage in extreme violence, as France's interior minister said, with no combat experience, training, or access to conventional arms. In other words, perfectly normal-looking young men like Mohamed Boulel who suddenly turn into mass murderers, leaving families broken and citizens fearful that no amount of security can keep them safe. Cleveland, a historic American city on the shore of Lake Erie at the mouth of the Cuyahoga River, hasn't received much respect in recent years, but with Republicans holding their convention in Cleveland this week, we asked our Moraka to take a closer look. In 1924, John Philip Sousa rocked the new public auditorium in Cleveland, host to the Republican National Convention. Calvin Coolidge strongly advocated for Cleveland because Warren G. Harding, who had recently died, was an Ohioan. John Grabowski is author of the Encyclopedia of Cleveland History. Cleveland is also a great place at this time. It is the fifth largest city in the nation, and it has a relatively new public auditorium. So the delegates attending the 1924 RNC were visiting a city on the rise? On the rise. If they went out to the east, they could have seen this new planned suburb, Shaker Heights, being built by the Van Swearingen brothers. They would have looked around and seen all the construction for the Cleveland Union Terminal. Queen of the Inland Waters, this thriving terminal of trade and transportation. Since that heyday, it's been a long nine decades for Cleveland, with some ups. Just after World War II, it is the best location in the nation. And a lot of downs. 
of the Kai, the Holga River, grows smoking through my dreams. Perhaps none more unfortunately symbolic than when the Cuyahoga River caught on fire, and not for the first time. This city became a national joke. And so then we go you from go best, best location in the nation to the stake on, on the lake. lake. This is a Cleveland institution at Slimans. And it features Cleveland's biggest corned beef sandwich. Comedian Mike Polk Jr. grew up in Cleveland. You just kind of ruined our entrance, but it's not a big deal. It's all right. <laughs> We were told since we were kids that we were in a lousy town, that this city wasn't great. Come on down to Cleveland town, everyone. Come and look at both of our buildings. Polk's satirical Cleveland tourism videos have racked up almost 20 million views on YouTube. Buy a house for the price of a VCR. Our main export is crippling depression. It could be worse, though at least we're not Detroit. So you think Cleveland being, at times, the butt of jokes helped shape your sense of humor. I do. I think it helped build a callus, and I think that it gave gave some perspective that some other people might not have. Whoa, wow. Yes, a campaign stop at Slimans will test your appetite for higher office. You, you've got to really want to be president to put one of these away. Exactly, you do. Yeah, we'll see how bad Hillary wants it. I think Trump will eat this whole sandwich right in front of us out of spite, just to like show that he can. As long as we're out and about, I want to show you some of our magnificent art here in Cleveland. Uh, the free stamp. Mike says downtown Cleveland's gotten a lot better lately. This is absolutely free. We can do this as much as we want. Though many of its architectural treasures are reminders of Cleveland's long ago golden age. Cleveland really hit its industrial heyday in the years after the Civil War and huge fortunes were built. It's a beautiful day to take the Winton out, yeah? Cleveland, it turns out, took an early lead in the manufacturing of automobiles. If you want additional air, you open up the windshield. Scottish immigrant and Clevelander Alexander Winton was already making and marketing his Winton motor carriages in 1898. I love the logo with the O at a tilt like that. Yes, the, the O was positioned like that to show forward motion. And, says Bernie Goliath, Winton was just one of a number of automobile companies that thrived in Cleveland during those early days. So why didn't Cleveland become the automotive capital of the world? Well, I would say that Cleveland was the original motor city. Among other Cleveland milestones, the first electric streetcar line, the first blood transfusion, and one of the first traffic signals. Euclid Avenue was once called Millionaire's Row. Innovations that made great fortunes for some and changed the way people lived everywhere. Would you say that Cleveland was the Silicon Valley of its time? In its own way, it was, because there was so much invention going on here. There was so much disruptive technology being created. The place we're standing, Anson Steger, next door, his neighbor, Jephthah Homer Waite, Western Union Telegraph, that's disruptive technology. That was the leading edge of communication. It's the Victorian internet. And over on the other side, inventor Charles Brush, whose arc lamp gave us outdoor lighting. If you could see his house now, if it still stood in his backyard, there's the world's largest power generating windmill in the 1880s. He had the first mansion here that was totally electrically lit. Oh, and just across the street, the founder of Standard Oil and America's first billionaire, John D. Rockefeller. What a neighborhood. It, what a neighborhood. These are no slouches here. These aren't legacy, just like rich kids, like no. living off their parents' that, wealth. That is, that's a really good point, Mo. Most, if not all, of these people did not start rich. They essentially came and invented a product and became wealthy. They were the first generation of wealth. And that wealth built great civic institutions. The world-renowned Cleveland Clinic, 
the Cleveland Museum of Art, and the Cleveland Orchestra, considered by some to be America's finest. Sort of uh, a well-kept secret. Franz Velser Most has conducted in Cleveland for 14 years. Every time there were economically downturns, the community rallied behind the orchestra. The orchestra is really a part of the identity of the community. And now, of course, LeBron James and his Cavaliers, who brought the city their first major sports championship in 52 years. We are no longer the mistake on the lake. I've been hearing that since I was a child. For Clevelander Melissa Perry, so the city she loves has finally city. regained the world's respect. With the Republican convention coming here, our Cleveland Indians, and of course our Cleveland Cavaliers. So we're waiting on our Cleveland Browns to really pull it together and follow suit. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. But there is a newly redesigned public square downtown. And as for the Cuyahoga, it's hot again. They've revamped all of this and made it look all pretty. Most of these bars over here are kind of yuppie bars that I honestly don't so much belong in, but I'm glad they're there and I'm glad the yuppies have a place to go. This Ohio City neighborhood, what was it like when you were growing up? We'll just say it was very sketchy. It was not a place you wanted to be at night. But now, Sam McNulty has five restaurants along the bustling 25th Street. We just actually this year opened up a production brewery. I really do think there's a lot more pride. We're all wearing t-shirts that say Cleveland on them. You don't see that in New York because they don't need to advertise to themselves that they're there. But we have to remind ourselves we're okay with it and be like, right, we're here. Let's, it's nice. It's not bad. We got shirts on. On deck, Jolton Joe. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. And now a page from our Sunday Morning Almanac, July 17, 1941. 75 years ago today, the diamond anniversary of a baseball diamond milestone. To match you up with the tying run at the plate. For that was the day New York Yankee Joe DiMaggio's legendary hitting streak ended at 56 consecutive games. The streak began on May 15th with a single against the White Sox. As game followed game and hit followed hit, the baseball world began to take notice and to hold its breath at every at-bat. On July 2nd, DiMaggio hit safely in his 45th game smashing the old record of 44 games set by Willie Keeler 44 years before. But Joe DiMaggio wasn't through. He hit in 12 more consecutive games until, on July 17th, in Cleveland, as it happened, Indians third baseman Ken Keltner snatched a hit from him not once, but twice, as DiMaggio would remember years later. I came up a second time and it was a carbon copy. You couldn't see two balls hit alike. He did the same thing, backhanded, straightened up, made the long throw, and he got him by the eyelash. Or as Keltner himself remembered it. Well, it wasn't Joe's day. No matter. Jolton Joe's feat was celebrated in song that year by the Les Brown Orchestra. Our kids will tell their kids his name, Jolton Joe DiMaggio. And celebrated by generations of fans ever since. In 75 years, no other player has even come close to DiMaggio's record, let alone broken it. 
After retiring at the end of the 1951 season, Joe DiMaggio remained in the public eye through his headline-making marriage to Marilyn Monroe, as well as his Mr. Mr. Coffee commercials. This is Mr. Coffee, Precision Coffee Brewing System. In 1968, his name figured in a second song as a brief cryptic lyric in Simon and Garfunkel's Mrs. Robinson. DiMaggio told Sunday Morning's Robert Lipsite in 1985. I still don't know what the song means. I, I, I've never um, understood it fully, and I still don't. Joe DiMaggio died in 1999 at the age of 84. His 56-game hitting streak record survives. <laughs> Next. <laughs> Curtain going up on the Cleveland Playhouse. The Republican convention will command center stage in Cleveland this week, but long after delegates have come and gone, the city's trademark theater will still be going strong. Scott Simon of NPR has saved us a front row seat. Thank you for attending the opening show of our 100th season. A world premiere. Dimmed lights and hushed excitement as the curtain opens. Bonjour, je suis Henry Saunders. The play is a farce. Four tenors, two wives, and three girlfriends in a swank Paris hotel suite. The screen, size, double entendre, and door slams. Maria, goodbye! But this world premiere isn't in New York or London, it's in Cleveland, Ohio. Talk about off-Broadway. What's your feeling for Cleveland? <laughs> I love Cleveland. And it's true love, <laughs> not a fling. Stinker, what is happening? Why are you angry this time? Ken Ludwig, whose plays have won the top four. theater awards on Broadway and the West End, even worked the name of the city. I was the mayor of Cleveland. Into the recent world premiere of A Comedy of Tenors. I've been lucky to have shows here. What can you tell us about Cleveland audiences? Cleveland audiences are my kind of audiences. I just, that's the primary reason I love to start plays here. They're sophisticated, they're smart, but it's also a great cross-section of middle America. Rob McClure is one of the tenors. He was nominated for a Tony in 2013 for the musical Chaplin. What's a hot young Broadway star doing so far from the Great White Way? You live in New York City, but you spend very little time working in New York City as an actor. I mean, if you're lucky, you work there on occasion. But very few actors are living in New York City and not going anywhere else. We all go to where the work is, um, and, uh, and this is one of those places. Want to do it again? Yes. Uh, uh, younger. After a hundred years of giving life to great works, Cleveland Playhouse received Broadway's highest honor, the 2015 Regional Theater Tony Award. It recognizes what people in Cleveland have known for a long time, but now the national spotlight is on it. Laura Kepley, the artistic director, can behold Broadway's highest honor in her theater's lobby. And they say that it's very good luck to spin it. Cleveland Playhouse was the country's first professional regional theater, founded in 1915. 
that was our first sort of permanent theater home. An exhibit at the Cleveland Public Library shows a century of acclaimed productions with unknown stars who would be household names. You recognize Alan Alda. Alan Alda. Alan Alda came to us as an apprentice actor in the late 50s. Later on, obviously, he became Hawkeye Pierce. Kevin Moore is the theater's managing director. Margaret Hamilton was a school teacher here in Cleveland. She's from Shaker Heights, yeah. Ohio, and uh, she was in our company performing in the 1920s. Moved to Hollywood, obviously became the Wicked Witch of the West, and uh, for, by all accounts, just a terrific lady. Who's that little boy? That's Joel Katz, otherwise known to the world as Joel Gray. Probably about nine, I was a, a part of a children's theater group at the Cleveland Playhouse yeah. called the Curtain Pullers. Joel David Katz's mother took him to see a play. He there, found uh, the love of his life. No choice. These kids came on stage in makeup with costumes, and my mother's right here, and I said, I want to do that. All I knew is I wanted to do it, and the Playhouse changed my life. A life that's led Joel Gray to a Tony Award, an Oscar for playing the Master of Ceremonies in Cabaret, then George M. and Wicked, a career he began as a pint-sized curtain puller. What was it like to be a little boy on stage there? I felt powerful when, as a kid, I felt like I had nothing to say in any choices. This was a place I could really bite into. Five years ago, we renovated... A lot of theaters across the country just take a touring Broadway show out of the box plug it in, and pull the curtains. Cleveland Playhouse produces new shows. They create the sets. This production has a 15 by 15 foot elevator mm -hmm. in the center of the stage. They make the costumes. You have to make something like this. Oh, you don't, yeah. you don't. You don't find it anywhere. Yeah. That's for sure. This but, one but is worth keeping. keeping I say. The Playhouse is a professional theater, but also a civic institution. So we're going to play Night at the Museum. With an education program that puts Playhouse professionals into 93 Cleveland area schools. We're not teaching children to act. We are teaching children to manage their emotions. We looked in on a training session. And what we'll do is we'll move to the empty chair. There's always an empty space, so there's one chair less than all of us. What starts as a game of musical chairs gets suddenly serious. Anyone who lost a parent when they were a child. Everything we're doing in the room is going to help you feel better about yourself. Look someone in the eye and say, I have this skill or I'm proud of this. That's so foreign for these kids. They walk in the room already in trauma. Mm -hmm. So our job is to not heighten their trauma, but to embrace it and figure out how to channel it. Much of the last century has been hard times for Cleveland. The city has lost jobs, people, and glamour. But Cleveland Playhouse has stayed. Attention must be paid. They've managed to keep telling the stories. And I think that's a great thing. Still to come, actress Meryl Streep singing a whole new tune. featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. 
It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. Meryl Streep played the mother of the bride in the 2008 movie Mamma Mia. This summer, she portrays a historical figure of, quite literally, dubious note. Anthony Mason has her story. Florence Foster Jenkins didn't make many recordings, but they had to be heard to be believed. We heard them at the drama school. You did? When I was a student, yeah. You'd actually heard oh, yeah. them as a student? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was pretty specifically great. <laughs> <laughs> Roll sound, please. Ready? Action. Music is my life. Meryl Streep plays Lady Florence, as she liked to be called, in the new film Florence Foster Jenkins, about the amateur soprano. Most of her notes, as one critic put it, were promissory. So many of the great singers of her time are not remembered, but she is. Well, that's a tragedy, actually. By the late 1930s, when these photographs were taken for Life magazine, Florence's performances were notorious. Mystifyingly, the society pages indulged her with glowing notices. Madame Jenkins' annual recitals, the New York Daily Mirror wrote, bring unbounded joy to the faded souls of Park Avenue and the musical elite. Composer Cole Porter was a fan, and astonishingly, at the peak of her notoriety in 1944, Florence took the stage at Carnegie Hall. Pretty daunting. Pretty impressive. <laughs> and performed to a sold-out house. This is the program that was handed out open, that, for her performance. Gino Francesconi says it's still one of the most requested programs in the Carnegie Hall archive. I think she picked up the phone and said, I'm booking myself here. Yeah. The daughter of a prominent banker from Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, Florence inherited a million-dollar fortune from her father. After moving to New York, she ascended society by joining dozens of women's social clubs. This is a time in the progressive era when women are coming into their own in terms of empowerment, terms of civic engagement, and uh, all of this sort of begins in the clubs. It's a sort of a Valerie Paley, chief historian of the New York Historical Society, says between the wars, New York grew to a city of five million people, 4,000 of them millionaires like Florence. She wasn't sort of a Harriman or an Astor or a Vanderbilt. I would say she was somewhere between that and the Bohemians of Greenwich Village. She had a very quirky sensibility. She certainly had great confidence in herself, which was part of her charm. She did an immense amount of charity work. Documentarian Donald Collip says Florence organized elaborate musical programs for her women's societies, including one she founded herself, the Verdi Club. There was one uh, event yearly. It was called the Bluebird Supper Dance. And it was just a charity to provide flowers for ill members. You know, I played for the president when I was eight years old. 
A piano prodigy as a child, Florence had gone to music school in Philadelphia. Was she, in the beginning, a good singer? I'm determined that she was probably less than mediocre. Even in the beginning? Even in the beginning. From her first husband, Florence is believed to have contracted syphilis, mistakenly treated in those days with injections of mercury. It affected her hearing, and more than likely she had tinnitus, which is a constant hum in the head. In, the, in those days it was called the serenading of angels. And it, it, it prevented her from singing in tune. Oh, I'm so excited. We're going to make a recording. Bravo! It was wonderful, Bunny. Can I try another take? Well, I don't see why. That seemed perfect to me. How hard work is it to sing that badly? In studying how she sang, it was not how bad she was, but it was how close she came to getting the note until the absolute last minute, and then it just would, oh, fail. But you were with her all the way. You thought, oh, maybe this time it'll work. <laughs> maybe this time I'll be lucky. This is my favorite place in the whole world. Mm -hmm. In 1944, at the age of 76, Florence decided she was ready for Carnegie Hall. We'll be murdered out there. You think that I'm not aware of that? Her longtime companion, actor Sinclair Bayfield, played by Hugh Grant in the film, often acted as her producer. Singing at Carnegie Hall is her dream. And I'm going to give it to her. Stephen Frears, our director, I begged him to shoot the audience first because I knew that they would never hear it again the same way. Oh, what an interesting idea. So to shoot them hearing it and so that the reactions would be real. <laughs> During filming, a London theater stood in for Carnegie Hall, but Street gave an entire performance as Lady Florence. It's all there in the DVD extras, <laughs> if you can bear it. Bravo, Madame Florence, bravo! Then when the reviews came out, Bayfield said she was crushed, and he said, she had not known, you see. New York Post columnist Earl Wilson called it one of the weirdest mass jokes New York has ever seen. You can have the Earl Wilson response. Yeah. You know, like, who is she fooling? And, you know, this is ridiculous. But you can also have the... Oh, God, love her. This is fabulous. Let's <laughs> let her go. What's yeah. next? What's next? Oh, my God, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I think there was that. A month and a day after her Carnegie Hall performance, Florence Foster Jenkins died. And she might have been long forgotten, if not for those recordings. It was originally meant for a Christmas gift for her members of her club. Mm -hmm. But they became such a cult hit. RCA bought the recordings in 1954, mm -hmm. and they've been available to the public ever since. She's never gone out of print? Never. When RCA issued it as an LP, it was called The Glory, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, of the human voice. 
as Lady Florence herself is said to have remarked, some may say that I couldn't sing, but no one can say that I didn't sing. Coming up, building in a basket. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. St. Louis has the arch. Seattle, the space needle. And Newark, Ohio has this. A basket, a very big basket. It may be a symbol rising out of the landscape that you didn't expect, but it stands for something. And it stands for really a person who was a big dreamer. That dreamer's name was Dave Longeberger, a visionary and entrepreneur. Dave learned basket weaving from his father and in time created an empire, making and selling handcrafted baskets in all shapes, sizes, and colors. At its height, the Longerberger Company was a billion-dollar-a-year business with 12,000 employees worldwide. With business booming, Dave needed a new headquarters. We'll let his brother, Gary Longerberger, take it from here. Being Dave, we all thought he was nuts anyway. But he told me one day he was going to build a basket, a building, corporate building that looked like a basket. And I thought, oh, my gosh, no. Gosh, yes. But even the designers and builders didn't quite get it. The architects and the contractors couldn't picture what he wanted. He actually left the meeting, went downstairs, got one, brought it up and said, this is what I want. Built in 1997, the Longerberger Basket Building was a sight to behold. This is a seven-story building. Those handles weigh 75 ton each. Newark Mayor Jeff Hall says it was no easy feat. They also are heated. Uh, if ice formed on them and would slip off there, it would damage the glass roof on the place uh, for the atrium. Dave had even grander plans, but then, in 1999, he died from cancer at the age of 64. Next, the economy took a hit. And while Longerberger's baskets didn't change, demand for them did. Over the last few weeks, um, we've been moving people out a couple at a time. And now we're down to, I think, three or four people left to go yet. Brenton Baker started working at Longaburger when he was 22. He's now the marketing president for JRJR Networks, the Dallas-based company that bought the business in 2013. The building served us well for many, many, many years. It's not the end of a chapter, it's the beginning of the next era for us. While there used to be 500 people at work here, Baker is one of the last to remain. It's been a good 18 years here. I made a lot of friends, a lot of friends through this company. And he's packing up. You see, last week, Longerberger began moving out. A bittersweet day, to be sure. At the once bustling factory, baskets are still being made by artisans like Michelle Coe, with a personal touch that connects her to every purchase. Every basket I make has my initials on it and that goes out all across the country. Where else do you hear that? And it's just, I just love it. 
And what will become of this one-of-a-kind landmark that's now up for sale? Ask Gary Longerberger, and his answer is simple. You think back to your brother. What would he be thinking? I'd like to see the building taken, really taken over and used for whatever purpose. But it's going to take some doing. That's my girl. Coming up, birds of a feather. What could Lily and Courtney here possibly have in common with veterans returning from combat? Turns out they can be birds of a feather, as Tracy Smith now shows us. You can hear the place before you ever see it. In a lonely corner of Los Angeles is a home for dozens of parrots, many of them neglected, abandoned, abused. Hello! The people who care for these birds know something about trauma themselves. Most are veterans who still carry the emotional baggage of war. Go on. But in this tiny haven of wounded birds and troubled humans, there's a connection that's hard to miss. Huh? Mike Flanagan served a combat tour in Vietnam. That's your favorite in the morning? He also served 22 years in prison for armed robbery. Zoe is an African gray, but to Mike, she's more than just a breakfast date. If you'd have told me five years ago that I'd be sitting in a cage like this petting a bird, I'd have told you you're out of your mind. She adopted me three days after I got here. She adopted you? Oh, yeah. What is this relationship between the two of you? I think she immediately saw something in me that I needed, you know? She makes me feel like I'm important to her. I can't explain it because I don't know enough about parrots or birds or anything, but it's just a great feeling. It's called Serenity Park. Zoe and three dozen other birds are part of an animal therapy program that pairs them with vets suffering from PTSD. The veterans say that somehow the parrots can connect with them in a way that no human therapist ever could. That's my girl. How do you feel when you come to this place? This is like coming back to home for me. It's like breathing. Lily Love is a former Coast Guard rescue swimmer who lost nearly all of her buddies in a chopper crash. Yes, my boy, you went up. Since then, she's battled depression and drug abuse, came out as transgender, and spent a lot of time in therapy. Let's see your big wings. Up, up. Nothing worked until she started coming here. Up. I like these birds better than people, to tell you the truth. <laughs> but and you, you joke about that, but you get along pretty well with people, and that's uh -huh. because of the birds, you think, in part? Definitely. They taught me patience. They taught me trust. They taught me all about how you can be happy and playful even in the midst of pain. You still have the pain? It'll probably never leave, but it's okay. So tell me about these guys. So this is an amazing story. You this place was all her idea. Psychologist Lauren Lindner used to take veterans she was working with to another parrot sanctuary she ran north of L.A. and was surprised at how well parrots and vets got along. And all of a sudden I'd see this transformation come over them. They'd be holding the birds in their arms and calling them sweet terms. And I hadn't seen that in the group therapy I'd been doing with them. 
So 10 years ago, Linder got the VA Medical Center to give her enough land to set up a few bird cages. And with a budget based solely on donations, Serenity Park was born. There's no hard scientific evidence to explain why parrots seem to help people suffering from PTSD. The thinking is that the traumatized birds and the traumatized vets share a common bond that somehow seems to soothe their souls. Hi, cutie. Hello. 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 Let me just ask you, what would you say to people who say, oh, come on, this sounds so hippy-dippy, parrots and veterans, they can relate? Do you have a dog? Dogs are domesticated to lie at our feet, but the parrots are not, yet they still want the relationship because they are a flock creature and they, they imprint. They have those social neurons that immediately make them say, you are who I want to follow for life. And they are monogamous. Pretty rare these days. But that loyalty can be a double-edged sword. <coughs> Parrots need near-constant attention, and some, when left alone, will scream for hours on end or tear out their own feathers in desperation. Harvard University researcher Irene Pepperberg says few people are prepared for a parrot in their lives. Imagine taking a, f a five-year-old child, putting it in a playpen with a few toys and a few snacks for 10 hours a day. It doesn't work that way. Good girl. What's more, a parrot can be a lifetime commitment. Yeah. Because? Because they live forever. I mean, I won't say forever, but, you know, 40, 50 years is very common. As a result, parrots can outlive their original owners, and those that do are often abused or discarded. Most of the Serenity Park birds went through hell at some point in their lives, just like the people who now care for them. There is an unspoken communication between one sentient being that has suffered trauma and another. And you feel that? And you feel that. Hey. Serenity Park operations manager Matt Simmons is a former Navy man whose job it was to keep track of bomb damage and body counts. Parrots like Phoebe here are helping him live with the memories. If you go to a shelter and you say, oh, I love that dog, that dog's going to go home with me, that dog is more than likely going to accept that relationship. But with a parrot who can fly, Hello. lives in a huge aviary, has no other reason to be with you other than self-selection. When they select you, it's unique. It's special. And that's something that a lot of our veterans and myself coming home didn't feel. Can you show me big wings? Who'd have thought that the most beautiful thing about a parrot... You want to kiss Phoebe? ...is its heart. Our destination is Chicago. Next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Beginnings is a song whose popularity seems to have no end. And it's just one of the many hits that have made Chicago one of the best-selling groups of all time. John Blackstone has their story for the record. On a summer evening at the Hollywood Bowl, time 
stood still. The band Chicago, now in their 50th year of performing, made music from decades ago seem like more than just blasts from the past. Thank you, thank you very much. Yeah. Are you guys having a good time? Lee Lochnane, Robert Lamb, and Jimmy Panko are three of the seven original members of the band, college kids who chartered a course back in 1967. We're going to be kind of a rhythm and blues band. We're going to be a rock band with horns. We were initially going to be a show band in Vegas. That, that for the first, probably, uh, what, a month? Like the mob. <laughs> yeah, that was the ultimate, that was the ultimate goal. Yeah. And to someday make a record. On their quest to make a record, they left Chicago for Los Angeles, where they got a regular booking at Whiskey A Go Go. I remember going out in the corner, taking a picture of the marquee with my little brownie camera, because our name was on the Whiskey A Go Go. We were the house band. Uh, on the off nights. <laughs> they didn't have top billing, but they did get noticed, in large part because of the talent of lead guitar player Terry Cap. We were coming out of the dressing room to go back on stage, and there's a guy standing in the doorway. It was Jimi Hendrix. And he looks at us and he goes, you guys got a horn section that sound like one set of lungs and a guitar player that's better than me. You want to go on the road? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we became Jimi Hendrix's opening act. Chicago has been on the road every year since. They've sold more than 100 million records, made 36 albums, and have more than 20 top 10 singles. In April, they performed for their induction in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. 37 million fans voted to put them there. They recorded their first album in 1969. It was only the beginning of a string of hits. Back then, they called themselves Chicago Transit Authority. Actually, the city's the real transit authority objected, for or so the story goes. Uh, some fella came into the control room and he was saying, why don't you just call yourself Chicago? And then he left. Uh, I, I don't even know who this guy was. And I remember we all sort of looked at each other. Kind of, Freddie that's, a great, that's a great idea. So the name was changed not because the Chicago Transit Authority was going to sue you? Oh, uh, personally, I think that was just flack. That was somebody's, <laughs> yeah. uh, somebody's idea of a good PR <laughs> Yeah, book. yeah. Along with the name change came the logo on their second album. From then on, Chicago, written this way, would never mean the city, would only mean the band. Your logo is arguably more famous than any of you are. Well, yeah, we've been yes. hiding behind that logo for 50 years. <laughs> I'm so happy. With that second album, they started to get radio play. The DJ comes on and goes, here's a new song by a new group called Chicago that's destined for number one. That's us on the radio. We got a single. Make me smile. 
albums didn't have names, just numbers, the way classical composers numbered symphonies. Looking back, of course, uh, it was a grand vision because if it had been one or two albums, it would have been pointless. Chicago 10, released in 1976, included the number one hit, If You Leave Me Now, written and sung by Peter Cetera. You know, we had the Midas touch and we could do no wrong. We got spoiled, we got full of ourselves, like everybody does, you know, with stardom, quote unquote. Along with the fame came drugs, alcohol, and tragedy. In 1978, Terry Kath died after accidentally shooting himself. The hits stopped coming. But Chicago wasn't finished. Everybody needs a little time away. They got a new producer, David Foster. He wanted less brass and more ballads sung by Peter Cetera. Peter Cetera was never crazy about horns from the get-go. And the result was uh, c considerably less horn involvement. And that was a bit difficult to swallow for the horn section. The album Chicago 16 put them back on the charts and they were discovered by younger listeners who didn't know the old song. I think you've said that there's some people who are puzzled why your first album is Chicago 16. Yeah, right. Yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. You've been discovered in A whole new generation. You know, the proof is in the pudding. The songs that, that came out of that collaboration were great. We still play them every night. The songs are the same, but members of the band have come and gone. In 1985, Peter Zatera left to pursue a solo career. It's like a family. There are divorces, there are deaths, there are, you know, people who just leave town. It's, it's just, it's evolution. With that evolution, the band has now grown to nine members. Lead guitarist Keith Howland is one of the newer members. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the new guys, yeah. Only been with the band? 21 plus years, 22 in January. And I had no clue that this gig could go this long, because, you know, I was 30, they were 50. I thought, you know, these guys are getting up there. And of course, now I'm 51, going on 52, and no end in sight. Have you figured out what it is that keeps these guys now late 60s, early 70s going? Same thing that keeps every musician going. They love what they do. You know, we can't do this forever, so when we can't do it a, a thousand percent, we'll probably decide to maybe, oh, well, maybe we should walk away. But that's not anywhere in the near future. For now, 
Chicago is making no concessions to age. And this band cooks. I mean, we'll go up against anybody. You want to rock and roll? Okay, come on. <laughs> Show us what you got. <laughs> Coming up, Paradise in a Park. While it may be true, as poet John Donne wrote, that no man is an island, the same can't be said for the national park our Connor Knighton is off to on the trail. The rooms at Keneal Bay don't have televisions or telephones, but that's about as close to roughing it as it gets at this hotel, a luxury resort situated inside of a national park. Guests enjoy access to pristine beaches, tropical cocktails, and sunset cruises. At night, there's fine dining under coral chandeliers or out under the stars. And if you're wondering, how did a national park end up with a resort that feels like the kind of place a Rockefeller would stay? Well, it's because Keneal Bay is actually the kind of place a Rockefeller would build. In 1952, Lawrence Rockefeller landed on this stretch of St. John, the smallest of the three main U.S. Virgin Islands. He thought this was one of the most beautiful places he'd ever seen. So he bought it. A lot of it, at least. It's good to be a Rockefeller. Lawrence was the grandson of John D. Rockefeller, founder of Standard Oil. His father, John D. Rockefeller Jr., used some of the family fortune to purchase land to expand Grand Teton National Park and create Acadia National Park, where I began this year-long journey. And so Lawrence, while developing a luxury resort in the middle of paradise, began to get a similar idea. He thought there should be a partnership between commerce and conservation, and he built the resort with the idea that visitors can um, have the luxury of sleeping in a bed, um, but can still kind of experience the benefits of being in a natural setting. So everything we're looking at right now is National Park? Yes. Corinne Finner is a ranger at Virgin Islands National Park. The first 5,000 acres were a gift from Rockefeller. With assistance from local developer Frank Stick, Rockefeller bought up nearly half the island. At a picnic on December 1st, 1956, he handed over the land to the federal government, with one condition, that he would still be allowed to run Keneal Bay. For Keneal Bay, it's definitely important to be sitting within the national park. Otherwise, you become a resort with a beach. Nikolai Hotze is the general manager of Keneal, where the setting remains the selling point. Rockefeller designed the hotel as one of the country's first eco-resorts. The lighting is low, the buildings are unobtrusive, the water is protected, and so when you go snorkeling here, you will see it. It's protected. The water is full of sea turtles. And while the land is owned by the Department of the Interior, Keneal operates under an exclusive lease, passed on to its current owners. But not much has changed since Rockefeller was in charge, except perhaps for the prices. In off-season, you can come and stay at Kinea Bay uh, from $390, $400 on, and the high end is uh, $1,800 in season per night, and then Cottage 7, Lawrence Rockefeller's house, uh, his old residence. The rooms of Cottage 7 were Rockefeller's preferred accommodations. 
More recently, they've played host to stars like Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. In a way, it was this hotel that kept the island from becoming a bunch of hotels. Sitting on the edge of St. John, you can look across and see St. Thomas, and the difference is striking. On nearby St. Thomas, development runs wild. But thanks to this chance visit by a New York billionaire, today, nearly two-thirds of St. John is a national park. It's the Virgin Island that remained virgin. A paradise protected. Ahead, a truly good sport. Even the greatest of sports superstars has to retire eventually. And contributor Paul Mercurio thinks he's just seen one of the classiest examples yet of just how it should be done. Something truly remarkable happened this past week. Five-time NBA champion and two-time league MVP Tim Duncan of the San Antonio Spurs retired after 19 seasons with one team. Best power forward to ever play the game. And so you know, I'm objective. This pains me to say since I'm a diehard Boston Celtics fan and there was a certain other forward who wasn't chopped liver. What was remarkable was not the fact Tim Duncan retired, but the way in which he retired and how emblematic that is of the type of player and man he is. I started not enjoying myself as much. It wasn't fun at times. <laughs> he announced his retirement on a cell phone in what looks like his mom's dining room in a T-shirt. Tim, come on. Would a suit and tie kill you? This is crazy to me, man. It's crazy to me. It's no over-the-top press conference, no parade of unneeded retirement gifts, no Kobe-esque six-month self-coronation retirement tour around the NBA, just a cell phone and a mic. And did you catch why he retired? <laughs> it wasn't fun anymore. Fun? Fun. Tim, have you been transported here from another time? Modern era big-time sports isn't about fun. There's a kid out there putting in work. It's about sneaker deals, unrestrained bad behavior, and Twitter followers. And that is what's truly remarkable about Tim Duncan. He's a throwback to a bygone era when players didn't care about any of that stuff. They put team ahead of self and were interested in quietly being great at their vocation through an incredible work ethic with none of the fanfare or narcissistic behavior we see in so many athletes today. Look, my son loves sports. Sports has a big effect in shaping him. I can say Tim Duncan is the man I love my son to emulate. Off the court, that is. My kid's 5'6 with no signs of growing, so I don't think he's going to be winning dunk contests anytime soon. Yes, Tim Duncan might be the last of his breed. Incredibly hardworking, dedicated, egoless, principled. In a word, remarkable. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning.